And I asked the uh, urologist at the end of the first stone camp, who else should be invited? I was looking for other uro- endourologists who were really interested in stones. And what they and what they said as a group was, you need to do this for nephrologists because we can't find any nephrologists who know anything about stones. <laughs> Freely Filtered, the irregularly irregular podcast that summarizes and discusses recent NFJC journal talks. NFJC is an online site for post-publication peer review that provides summaries, visual abstracts, interactive chats, newsletters, and podcasts on the research and developments that are driving nephrology forward. This podcast is for educational and entertainment purposes only and is not intended to give medical advice. If you have questions about your health, this isn't a place to find answers. We suggest ringing up ChatGPT or your doctor rather than take the advice of some self-appointed randoms on a podcast. This podcast may discuss off-label and unapproved medications, but not tonight. Hello, my name is Joel Toff, Kidney Boy on Twitter. Tonight we have Josh. Hi there, Josh Waitsman. I'm a nephrologist and scientist at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Boston. I tweeted Jay Waits. I have no conflicts of interest for the episode. I'm really excited to learn about what we actually can do for stones, even if it's not this. We have Swap. Hey, I'm Swapnil Hiramad. I'm a nephrologist epidemiologist at the University of Ottawa in Canada. Uh, I have no conflicts uh, as well today, and I am on Mastodon at hswapnil at medmastodon.com. Sophie. Hi, everybody. I'm Sophia Ambruso. I'm a clinician educator and an assistant professor at the University of Colorado in Denver, VA. I have no conflicts of interest, and I tweet at Sophia Kidney. Nayan. My name's Nayan Aurora. I'm a nephrologist at the University of Washington in Seattle. I tweet at Captain Chloride, and my only disclosure is that I had a kidney stone 10 years ago, and I'm not on hydrochlorothiazide. (laughs) (laughs) It was uric acid, wasn't it? I don't know what it was, except all I can tell you is I was the biggest weedy possible, and it was the most pain I've ever been in in my life. We have two content experts with us tonight. We have Megan Prohaska. Megan, introduce yourself. Hi, yeah, thank you. I'm so excited to be here today. I'm assistant professor of medicine at the University of Chicago and a member of our kidney stone program. And yeah, I'm excited to talk about this trial today. Now, you're a lifer at University of Chicago, is that right? Not quite a lifer. I did um, medical school and residency there, but then I did my fellowship training and stayed on staff at the MGH Brigham program uh, for fellowship and stayed on staff at the Brigham for a short period of time before coming back to the University of Chicago a couple of years ago. A couple of years ago at the University mm-hmm. of Chicago. Oh, oh yeah. excellent. And we have Dr. John Asplin. John, you want to introduce you? Hi, John Asplin. I'm a nephrologist. I work at Lithalink Corporation. So I'm one of those industry whores you hear about. Uh, that is my conflict of interest. Uh, we sell lab testing to kidney stone patients, which may be germane for tonight. I do have a Twitter account. Uh, Robin Aha is uh, my Twitter handle, but you cannot follow me there because I don't ever tweet. Excellent. And you run a stone camp. Sophie, why don't you tell us about stone camp? Yeah, I was lucky enough to be invited to the stone camp uh, just a couple weeks ago. And actually- uh, Wait, is this just, is it invitation only? 
I think it's word of mouth and invitation only, only because it's got, it's like, it is up close and personal and you get all the deets and it's gotta, it's gotta be pretty small. So it was word of mouth who somebody, a urologist, in fact, recommended me to Dr. Asplin. So, and then I got uh, invited myself. Sophia, how bad do you have to be at Stones for a urologist to tell you to go to Stone Camp? <laughs> Can I actually ask a, a career question for John? You, you now working at Litholink. How did you end up at Litholink? That's kind of not a traditional career path for folks okay, that, we, um, that we see. I'm one. Of, I'm one of the founders of Litholink, so that's kind of how I ended up there. But that's a good reason. Um, Tell us the story, though. Tell us the story. I want to hear that. Yeah, sure. Uh, you know, I was an assistant professor at University of Chicago, Fred Coe, longtime kidney stone expert, uh, was my mentor. And mid-90s, Fred, uh, you know, we could take what we did at University of Chicago and bring it nationwide if we ran a lab. And so, you know, Fred was the, the force behind this, but Fred and his children and myself basically got the company up and running. And it started extraordinarily slowly. You know, I was the, when, we, when we started, I was the only lab tech. I would, on my way home from University of Chicago, I would stop in at Litholink and run the one 24-hour urine we had received during the day. And, uh, and that went on for a little while. And then we slowly got business. And we got busy enough that by uh, five years later, I left the university as an employee. I continued there as a teaching faculty, but I left as an employee and uh, went to Litholink. It's an odd, it's a very odd career because I've carved out a, a, a very academic career while working in industry. And that's, that's what's been nice about it. And uh, we were bought by LabCorp in 2006. And so uh, Litholink is now a subsidiary of LabCorp. But LabCorp has allowed me to continue to do things like research and teach and, and things like that. So host Stone Camp. They don't. They don't seem to care what that what I do. So that's been kind of nice. I really don't want to minimize the Stone Camp, though, you guys. I mean, there is there is stuff that you learn in Stone Camp that you won't learn anywhere else. And it's. I feel like my understanding of of a diagnosis of just looking at urine is is expanded dramatically. And I had to like come back home and consolidate all of the knowledge that I learned. I really recommend anybody who's interested in stones to to go to this camp. How many days is it? Day and a half. But then he wines and dines you. So it's fantastic. And how much does it cost? It's free, except that you have to get get there and pay for your hotel. So get yourself to Chicago. Mm-hmm. And, when, and put some dates on this down. When did you guys start uh, Litholink? What year okay, we started. Litholink opened in March of 1995. I left the University of Chicago in 2000. LabCorp bought us in 2006. Those are the key dates. <laughs> So you've been employed for LabCorp for, that's been a long time, 2006. Yeah. Yeah. And now, like, can you give us a sense of the scale? Like how many 24-hour sure. urines is Litholink so, doing? You know, I feel like a lot. We do, you know, we've done well over 2 million 24-hour urines. You know, not to spend too much time on Litholink, but, you know, the premise when we opened up the lab was threefold. We wanted to hopefully improve care of kidney stone patients. We wanted to generate research. And we thought one of the ways we could generate research was by having a huge database. And then three, we wanted to make a profit. And and if anyone tells you they open up a company without listing item number three as one of their goals, don't believe anything else they say. But, uh, you know, I think we succeeded, you know, and then on top of that, what's been interesting is about th- three years ago, LabCorp wanted to transfer the actual analysis of stones to Litholink. And so 
we had we took that on. That was a, a big project for me anyway. And so now we do 250 to 300,000 24-hour urines a year. And we also do um, about 150,000 kidney stone analysis. And what's really going to be interesting over the next couple of years is merging all that data. Because we have by far the biggest data set of 24-hour urines, and now there's going to be a large intersect of 24-hour urines and kidney stone analysis in one data set, which has never existed before on this scale. So can I uh, can I interrupt here? Uh, so I'm I'm from I'm from Canada, sure. and we don't have Litholink in Canada. So I've heard a lot. I know. I tried <laughs> to bring it there, and uh, you guys are very resistant. Uh, uh, not by choice. Uh, so I've heard of Litholink, and I've heard of 24-hour urines, but but what happens? Uh, what kind of report do people get? Uh, I mean, we do 24-hour urines, but what's special about Litholink? Yeah. You know, I've actually had Canadians come to Stone Camp, so I, and they keep bugging me to bring it there. But, you know, the, the, there's a few things that we do differently. One of them is that uh, we provide an interpretation. This isn't for Megan and this isn't for Sophie, but for people who don't do kidney stones regularly, we actually have created, you know, software or you know, whatever you want to call it that will do the interpretations and give a, a reasonable, in-depth interpretation that is highly patient-specific. It's for me. They have the interpretation for me. For people who are 20% clinicians and of that only see a small fraction of kidney stones like me, they come with this really nice chart where the stuff you need to fix is in big letters and on the right of the screen. And the stuff that's totally great is in small letters on the left, and you can ignore it and just compliment your patient on how much water they drink. And so it's like, it's a really nice format, and then it gives you nice suggestions underneath. And then it gives you the full metabolic profiling on the next couple of pages. But it, it's a really user-friendly format, which I think we really like. It, it's amazing. Like, uh, I, we look at medical reports all the time, and none of them are designed with the thought and care that the Litholink reports are. Right. In terms of the way that they emphasize that everything's on a continuum and that, that you're trying, and they highlight what is problematic for that particular patient. It is so, such a useful, uh, display of information. It's really, I, I just wish that CT scans and echo reports use that type yeah. of thought in how they're going to present information. It's a, it's a, it really is an, an impressive use of, uh, uh, just a, a, a information display. I love it. And you get a urine ammonium. Where else do you get that? Yeah, that 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 is a sore point for many people. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's interesting that people say you can't get a urine ammonium in this country, and I run a quarter of a million of them a year. <laughs> <laughs> okay, tonight we are completing our trifecta of dogma shredding diuretic studies. In this stretch, we saw pragmatic evidence that chlorothaladone was just another name for hydrochlorothiazide in regards to cardiovascular disease outcomes. We learned that ferrosamide and torsamide, despite different pharmacokinetics, make no different in heart failure outcomes. And tonight, we are supposed to wrap our heads around the idea that thiazides do not reduce kidney stone recurrence. We don't do a lot of kidney stone manuscripts in FJC. Back in 2018, we looked at antibiotic usage and the association with subsequent kidney stone events. Spoiler for this five-year-old study, using sulfa antibiotics doubled the risk of kidney stones in the subsequent three to 12 months. And in 2015, we did our other kidney stone paper, an evaluation of the American College of Physician guidelines on kidney stones. In that paper, 
the ACP reviewers denigrated most of what kidney stone experts do and suggested that there was only evidence for increasing water intake. And if that didn't work, to try citrate, allopurinol, or I don't know, a thiazide diuretic, which they rated as very low evidence. Following that publication, the stoners erupted in protest, and FJC largely stood by our calcified brothers and sisters in hollering at the ACP, siding with the guidelines posted by the American Urologic Association, which came out about one year prior. But the interesting thing about the AUA and the ACP guidelines is that they both used the same evidence review, which was a document produced by the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality called the Comparative Effectiveness Review of Recurrent Nephrolithiasis in Adults and Preventative Medical Strategies. And an author of that review, though he doesn't seem to remember that, is with us tonight, John Asplund. Now, the interesting thing about that document review is they kind of go through all the thiazide studies. There were, they, they reviewed, I think there were six of that, those studies at that time. A large percentage of them or a large fraction of them, not a, not a majority, did use hydrochlorothiazide. And they did not find in their review, they didn't find a dosing response, that they couldn't find evidence that 50 milligrams was better than 25 milligrams or that BID dosing was better than daily dosing. I think these are all be issues that will be brought up tonight. I'm not sure, but those were not found in that evidence review. And that generally that the, the evidence when looking at the outcome of stone recurrence was thin. And tonight we're going to look at a study that I think is impeccably done that does show no effect on a patient-oriented outcome of recurrence of kidney stones with using a th- of hydrochlorothiazide. So I'm excited to get into it. Uh, we're going to start with uh, methods. Nyan, help us out with the methods tonight. I like swaps gotten demoted to the peanut gallery and I'm on methods. Hey, you've been doing methods for a long this, time. What are you talking about? Nyan, you're getting a promotion. <laughs> you're getting a promotion. Listen to you how you treat the promotion. We brought, we brought you up to methods. No, no, that's only when Joel mixes swap and I up by accident. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> it's been a while since we've recorded, hasn't it? <laughs> All right. So, so No Stone published in. The New England Journal of Medicine, this is a placebo-controlled, double-blind, parallel group, randomized trial, which was across multiple sites in Switzerland, funded by the Swiss National Science Foundation. Pretty simple inclusion criteria. So these are adult patients with at least two episodes of kidney stones within the prior 10 years that had to be composed of at least 50% calcium oxalate, calcium phosphate, or a combination of both. Hypercalciuria was not an inclusion criteria. Everybody had a stone analysis. Is that right? We knew the composition of everybody's stone. They had to have uh, a calcium stone, essentially. Can I interrupt? I I don't want to break. Have you you listened to the podcast? Yes, of course you can interrupt. (laughs) Uh, But, you know, one of the oddities, and sometimes it's just how people word things, but they said they had to have a stone analysis that showed calcium oxalate. They didn't exclude people if they had other kinds of stones, or they didn't mention that. So if you had calcium oxalate and uric acid, they didn't say whether you were excluded or not. Mm-hmm. But you, if and, you and had to have a, ca- a calcium oxalate stone to be included in right. the whole, to, at least but, one of the But it's an interesting you. issue if you have people, because there are people who form both. So only only one of those two prior stones had to be at least 50% calcium. They didn't mention uh, whether they, whether know, they the excluded on other kinds of stones. Megan, Megan, you've seen some kidney stone patients before. 
uh, how, what fraction do you actually know the composition? How common is that? Does this end up getting a select group or is this pretty general? No, I know the vast majority of the stone analyses. All of my referrals have come from my urologist. We very rarely can't get a stone analysis. And so the vast majority of my patients come with stone analyses. It's significantly more powerful. I mean, I can look, I can use supersaturations and things like that to make some assumptions about stone type based on stone risk from a supersaturation. But Usually I, I have a stone analysis. Typically. Let's flip that over. How, how often do you look at the supersaturation and you look at the stone analysis and you're like, wow, I wouldn't have guessed that's the stone from the supersaturation. Like how often does the, the urine analysis lead you the wrong direction? Uh, no, typically they're consistent. And we've sh- uh, So yeah, typically clinically it's consistent. Every once in a while, I might be surprised that they have slightly higher calcium phosphate stone risk than I might have anticipated. But for the most part, if they formed a, a calcium oxalate stone, their calcium oxalate supersaturation will be high. And then we've also shown that epidemiologically that it's consistent in terms of stone type they use uh, as well. But, but you know, again, for non-stone doctors like me, aren't the vast majority of stones calcium oxalate anyway? Is it like more than 50% or is it a plurality or a majority? Are calcium oxalate. Uh, so most most stone formers form calcium oxalate stones. It's I think it's eighty percent was usually the what what's in my brain is usually eighty percent for that citation. I'd have to look up uh, where I come from that. But yeah, eighty percent of stone formers are calcium based. Actually, it might be eighty percent are calcium based, and then the majority of them are calcium oxalate. Yeah, it's, it, you know, but, in our in our stone analysis lab, it's going to be about it's about seventy five percent of stones are majority calcium oxalate. But what percentage of them have other stones that you guys also identify? So, I mean, it's common to see a small part of a calcium oxalate stone form and have a small portion of that be calcium phosphate. And that's, that gets a little bit into things like, you know, where, if it, you know, if it's maybe where it formed, potentially like a Randall's plaque. And and it's also thought of that maybe calcium phosphate could sometimes be an itis. That's a little bit of some of the um, like work that people like Fred Coe have done over many years. Terms of percentage that are mixed. I mean, Do you say somebody like Fred Coe? Is there actually anybody else <laughs> like, Fred like Fred Coe? No, because I've mean. never met anybody like Fred no, Coe. That's true. That guy is a one. They, they broke the mold after that. <laughs> one. No, no. Fred Coe's done some work, and people were like him. But I, or sorry, people who work with him have done. Uh, you know, like Andy Evans and some of those folks. And then you said <laughs> people that like Fred Coe, and I haven't met anybody that. No, I'm just yeah, kidding. I'm just kidding. Fred He's a my, delightful man. I love Fred Coe. Fred is my current mentor, and we spend several hours a week on Zoom calls, uh, even you know, even at this time together. Yeah. No, but but uh, folks who have done work on things like Randall's plaque, for example, have have shown that. But yeah, John, you might have a better sense of is I don't know if there's a pers- a lot of the stones have a little bit of a, a mixed component. But yeah, and it, it 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 varies, and a lot of it varies depending on uh, what what lab actually does the analysis. But you know, it, it, it get get back to the first question, which I think Joel asked, what percent of patients have a stone analysis done? I'm going to guess nationwide is probably around fifty percent. Megan lives in an idealized world of referral, and in the general population, it's probably under fifty. It's probably around fifty percent at best. I was going to say that's my that's my experience in patients that come to me with many of them actually have them in their home somewhere that they've squirreled away because the doctor said they didn't want them, and the patients keep them. And if they, if you have a patient who has a seventy year old stone in their uh, bedroom uh, dresser, have them bring it in. It's still good to analyze. <laughs> Excellent. And they started off with the uh, composition of the stones, right? Uh, so one of the things uh, I remember we had David Goldfar present to us a long time ago, and we were again, you know, complaining and whining about not having litholink. And he said, you know, if you can't do all those things, most of the stones are calcium oxalates, just tell them to drink water, 
give them a thiazide, tell them to take potassium citrate, and that's probably good enough. Uh, again, you know, this this is where this trial is very useful because uh, maybe some people have been practicing like that, and and this makes us question that sort of a strategy. Yeah. Well, uh, I'll I'll hold off on that strategy till we get to the end of the article. <laughs> <laughs> Are John and Megan, you guys are okay with no hypercalciuria? Your statement is accurate. I will also make the comment that the definition of hypercalciuria was uh, when they did break the patients down by hypercalciuria, the definition of hypercalciuria was uh, uh, unusual in the research field. So they said 200 mil. 200 milligrams was a, their, their line was 250 too for men and 200 for women. Is that what it was? What was it? I think it was 200 for everybody. 200 for everybody? Yeah. And, and, and it was 200 for everybody. Go ahead. Well, just, you, know, the, the, you know, the dichotomization of, of data, especially urine chemistry data, it always bugs me, but people have to do it for research. But that's, a, that's an unusually low number to choose for a research study. Which is what they, which gives them the, their one, th- when they say one third people had hypercalciuria, most researchers would look at the data and say it was significantly less than one third. Yeah. What, what numbers are typically in, in, in these studies, what, tum- what, what lines in the sand do they typically draw for hypercalciuria? Well, I think, you know, classically people either use four milligram per kilogram body weight or they use 300 for men, 250 for women. Not that I'm, believe me, I'm not wed to those numbers, but when you're doing research, you have to grab a number somewhere to, to make a definition. And those are, those are at least they have some historical uh, heft to them and makes it easier to compare past studies. Do you think this comes from, there was that study that was done in nurses and doctors that were healthy people, and they were just looking at degree of hypercalciuria in that group that were stone formers. And once you hit the 200 mark, they were at higher risk than those who were like 100 to 199. I think you're referring to Gary Kerhan's Nurses Health Study, right. the Health Professional Follow-Up Study. Yeah. So actually in Gary in Gary Kerhan's work, the really the uptick actually started as soon as 150, as early as 150, I think. But so yes, it is true that compared to a non-stone former, your likelihood urine calcium higher than 150 increases your likelihood of being a stone former, your odds ratio, I think it was, but it's Kitty International, I think 2008 was this paper. But I know Gary's work well, because he was my mentor, but I can cite some of these uh, very explicitly. But um, he, uh, but, but still, disp- so it, that gets a little bit to John's point of continuous variables, and you just dichotomize a random spot. But typically, to John's point, we still would define hypercalciuria higher than that for especially for a research point. So even though the risk of stones technically does go lower and continuously, we we would try to clinically get someone lower. In a study like this, I would have expected the cutoff to be higher, like 250, for example. And it's pretty disappointing that only two thirds of the patients even hit their own um, definitions of hypercalceria, which is just, that's, that's getting at a lot of people who I wouldn't clinically even may not consider a thiazide for anyway, because I might think that there's something else driving up their individual's kidney stone risk. And wouldn't that totally affect their supersaturation? So when they say, oh, the supersaturation didn't change much, would you really expect it to change with these modest decreases anyhow? Like if it's, if it's not even that hypercalciuric, you shouldn't expect a significant supersaturation, right? Well, so John, you could probably speak more about equal to in terms of the calculations of supersaturation than I can. But yeah, I mean, if you see a reduction in urine calcium, you would expect a reduction in the supersaturation. It, it might be mm-hmm. quite modest if the urine reduction in urine calcium was modest. They, of course, had other changes to their urine composition. This Watch it. Watch it. Thoughts as to why. Yeah. Uh, so, <laughs> I know. Sorry, I was I, the that's the last time we're putting you on results, Sophie. My God. So I'm, not, 
Nyan, can you get your... <laughs> All right. There's a number of exclusion criteria. I'll go through a few of them that are probably relevant. So participants could not have been on pharmacologic prevention for stone recurrence within three months prior to randomization. They were not allowed to have secondary causes of nephrolithiasis. And they list a whole bunch of things that we think about, like, you know, bypass surgery, sarcoid, hyperparathyroidism, distal RTAs, etc. A number of medications were prohibited both at the time of randomization or screening as well as during the duration of the trial. So they couldn't be on loops or thiazides preceding uh, the study. Uh, Carbonic anhydrase inhibitors, xanthine oxidase inhibitors, Alkali therapy was not allowed, active vitamin D, calcium supplements, bisphosphonates, denosumab, teriparatide, and glucocorticoids. Chronic kidney disease was an exclusion criteria. Hypokalemia, less than three was their definition for exclusion. Hyponatremia, less than 125 milliequivalents per liter. Pregnancy or lactation. Postmenopausal, within 12 months of randomization, and if they had a thiazide allergy. Uh, so, uh, participants were then randomized in a- Just one, just one second. Do you, either of our experts here have any trouble with those exclusion criteria? I'm a little nervous about starting the thighs on anybody less than 130. I'm, that's a bold move there, but other than- Well, I, I, I thought that was not an exclusion. I thought that was an exclusion from be- staying in the study. No, I believe it was an exclusion. I'll confirm, but I believe this is an exclusion for- from randomization. Well, because I'd, I'd be concerned about starting somebody on a thiazide with a K of 3.1. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. No doubt. No doubt. Okay. But uh, I, I, don't have, I don't have much trouble. I mean, those, those are the kind of standard exclusions. Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah, it was an exclusion criteria. Okay. So probably, probably good the with people that? who physicians were also self-selecting who they were going to be excluding and not following the hypokalemia, hyponatremia parameters themselves. Yeah. Okay, move along. Let's let's. So then, participants then randomized uh, one to one to one to one to varying doses of hydrochlorothiazide. So that was twelve and a half milligrams, twenty five milligrams, or fifty milligrams a day, or placebo. It was a. They also stratified randomization based on the prior stone events. So there was one group that had two to three stones uh, preceding versus group two, which had at least four stones uh, within the, those ten years. And it was a planned three-year duration for uh, follow-up unless they were enrolled within the final year, just as just a caveat, they could be followed for two or three years. They then manufactured drug packs so that the study drug and placebo were identical and participants were dispensed 90-day supplies of the whatever they were randomized to. Yeah, and that was actually pretty cool is that the randomization was done at the manufacturing Yep level. And so nobody had any possible way of breaking the blind. Yep. If, if reading that part just kind of was like, ooh, well done study. So all participants got a CT scan at the time of randomization, as well as at the end of treatment. Uh, they had clinical follow-up visits at three months post-randomization, then uh, yearly. And in between, they had telephone visits every three months. All patients, irregardless of randomization, got dietary recommendations. Uh, and those were two to two and a half liters of fluid intake per day, quote unquote, normal calcium intake of one to 1.2 grams, animal protein of 0.8 to one gram per kilo per day. And what's interesting is that the sodium chloride recommendation was four to six grams a day. And Megan, how does that yeah, sound? So, I mean, so AUA guidelines in terms of sodium intake are 2,300 milligrams per day. Which is 100 yeah. milliequivalents. Okay. Very good. Okay. 
All right. The primary endpoint for this study was a composite of symptomatic or radiologic recurrence of kidney stones. The way that was defined for symptomatic recurrence was the visible passage of a stone with or without symptoms or a stone requiring surgical removal. If symptoms were present, excuse me, yeah, if symptoms were present without visible stone passage, it was up to the investigator to decide whether that constituted recurrence or not based on typical symptoms. Uh, radiologic recurrence was defined as an appearance of a new stone on CT or enlargement of a pre-existing stone that had been seen on that baseline CT. And I'm curious what people think about that because that doesn't sound like recurrence to me necessarily, but I will defer to. You know, this is kind of classic in the stone field that you lump recurrence and stone growth together. And I mean, I don't have any problem with that. What bothered me is they didn't define what stone growth meant. You know, how how much bigger did it have to get? And I don't, you know, and uh, they refer you to the uh, previous publication outlining the protocol for that detail, but it's not in the previous publication either. Um so that's always a little bit different. This is the, as far as I would know, Megan, correct me if I'm wrong. This is the only, you know, controlled trial in stone disease where they did CT endpoints. And the stone community was very excited about the idea that we should do a trial with CT endpoints to get much more accurate stone counts. So, you know, this is this is something important in this study that they did that. But the question is, is what makes a bigger stone and how much bigger did it have to get to be called stone growth is an unanswered question in Can this I paper. That's a quick question, too, because for me, I feel like actually having a symptomatic stone is a lot harder to catch, right? And But you can have significant stone growth without it becoming symptomatic. And so I feel like having these two combined in a composite outcome sort of dilute one another. And so I know that we separate them later on, but I feel like why would they combine those for the for the primary endpoint? That's part of what, you know, it's, it's the history of the field. You know, sometimes people, at least in the stone field, say, you know, the endpoint that patients care about is, is stone passage or a symptomatic stone event. I, I'm not sure that that's true. And I think it's made up by researchers. And a lot of it has to do with how you, you pitch it to the patient. If you tell the patient you had a two millimeter stone and now you have a one centimeter stone, that's actually a significant event. And if you say, well, why does the surgeon decide to do, go to take him to the OR for an asymptomatic stone? It's because it's now one centimeter. And that's one of their endpoints, surgery. And so stone growth leads to that removal of the asymptomatic stone. If you tell the patient, you know, when your stone gets up to one centimeter, uh, there's no way that you're going to pass this when you're on your vacation at Yellowstone. The patient thinks that's a real important endpoint now when they, when you told them they had a two millimeter stone and that if it breaks free, they'll pass it and they may not even feel it. So, you know, whether the patient cares about it is depends on how the doctor describes the, the stone size and what it means to them. And I think the patient, if you tell them that a big stone doesn't pass spontaneously and a tiny one does, that's a big deal to a patient. So so for those of, of us like myself that, that didn't go to stone camp, if you have somebody who enrolls in this study with pre-existing stones seen on imaging and you put them on any kind of therapy with or without the clinical trial, you have somebody in clinic, they have a stone, you, you change their urinary composition to try to decrease risk. Do you expect that stone to stay the same, not get bigger, not pass? Does it actually change those variables? So yeah, I mean, when I see patients in clinic, and if I know that they have a stone, what I tell them is that our goal is that that stone does not get bigger, and that we don't form any new stones. And so I will use that then as the metric in terms of the next time they get imaging, I'll say, you know, I'll use that along with our urine composition. And if they're, if I can get their supersaturation down to goal, I have, you know, I have no reason to think that they can't keep their stone burden 
uh, the same without forming new stones and keeping the same size. Yeah. If they have significant stone growth on follow-up, I feel like I failed. And then Megan, can I ask one other question about that visit when you're giving people guidance? Like, how do you expectation set? Like, I, I often will talk with folks and say, I don't know that I can promise you'll never have a kidney stone again, but we can reduce your risk of a future kidney stone. And if it's going from three a year to one a year, that's two fewer times you're in the emergency room with these symptoms. Are you really telling folks if we're great about this, no more stones for the rest of your life? Are we like saying 50% reduction? Like what's like a reasonable goal when you set folks up? Yeah. I mean, I don't think I necessarily give the, you know, for the people who I saw a guy today who, is a, who has been getting Q3 month uh, URS or ureteroscopies until, um, until, you know, we started actually trying to do some prevention. So for him, yeah, it was about, let's just try to decrease the number of times per year you're going back to urology. But yeah, 12 and a half, <laughs> 12 and a half hydroclorothiazide He's on a daphomide. Presumably. Oh, you're definitely a stone doctor, a daphomide. So, uh, okay. but, but yeah, I mean, so with some of those patients in terms of expectation setting, you know, I might not necessarily be specific about, you know, they, they may know that it, the chance of them recurring in 20 to 30 years is still non-zero, but the goal is that they don't recur in, mm-hmm. you know, in one to five years. Uh, and to Sophie's point, again, having the composite outcome is also useful because you get more number of events. Uh, so you're going to have power uh, rather than use just symptomatic. Symptomatic plus radiologic is going to get you more events, which is helpful in a in a clinical trial. Uh, what I would ask the stoners is when you read the outcomes, were you like, this is crazy? Or were you like, these are reasonable? My concern was that there wasn't, to, to John's point, there it wasn't clear enough to me that it was a just looking at, is there a What defines stone yeah, growth? Stone growth. And that my worry was that some of these stone passage events were actually indicating stones that had already been present at the start of the trial passing then, because formation and passage are two separate events. And so that's, or two separate things. And so my concern was that it was capturing stones that had been present before the trial started. And that's another thing that's different in this trial than many of the old ones, which is they would try to account for stone. So if a year after the patient was randomized and into the trial, if they passed a stone, they would look and see, was that, could they account for a change in stone burden? So let's say you had a a stone in your right kidney, then you had a symptomatic stone event, and that stone was now gone. It was presumed to be passage of a pre-existing stone and not a failure of therapy. That was not accounted for in this trial. Well said. Thank you. Nine. So there was a few secondary endpoints, which were essentially the individual components of the composite. And then uh, they looked at changes in urine composition, which we'll talk about. The only other thing to mention for their power calculation, they assumed a relative risk reduction of 10%, 35%, and 50% for the 12 and a half, 25, and 50 milligram doses of hydrochlorothiazide, respectively. Uh, I'm not smart enough to know whether that's appropriate or not. And they assumed a 20% stone recurrence at 12 months and 45% at 36 months. And they did hit their goal. Was that stone recurrence or was that their outcome, their measurement of outcome? That's the, 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 primary, the primary outcome, yeah. Which, which they defined as growth on a CT scan or uh, Wait, passage, right? Their the, outcome. They're yeah. looking at the primary that's outcome. Right. That's what that that's measurement right. is. Uh, uh, John, they used equal to software to measure the supersaturation. Is that stuff crap? Do you never use equal to? <laughs> That's what we use at Litholink. It's, oh! <laughs> it's, it's the most commonly used product. Uh, I mean, it's, it's commonly used for a number of reasons. One is that it's old and two, that it's free. 
<laughs> These are great things. <laughs> and do those rate ratios strike John and Megan as reasonable risk reductions at those levels of thiazide? Those felt like pretty significant risk reductions that might have overstated how great these medicines were but the 50 percent is based on the prior trial so i think that's a the for the 50 for the high dose that's based on the prior trials um it's probably a little ambitious for the dose for the dose of thiazide they chose but um the 10 percent is made up at 12 and a half milligrams because no one ever done that trial before uh, <laughs> and then then they chose a number halfway between those two for the in-between dose and you could argue that you know again we haven't gone down this path and maybe we'll go again at the end is is 12.5 the right dose at all to choose but i think there's some data showing that people do use that kind of a dose uh, the there's a chart review showing uh, the vast majority i think 52 percent in some chart review were 25 milligrams and, and you know, a big chunk was twelve point five. So you know, I'm involved in a bunch of those studies for chart reviews and merging right. data sets of pharmacy data and and claims data. And one of the issues about that is that you're making an assumption as to why the drug was prescribed, and that if you're a stone former and you're on thiazide, it's a sign that you were given that drug for for the stone disease, where it may have been given for hypertension or whatever else. That but people- John, the stone doesn't know what the indication was, right? No, but that, but when you're talking about the how you chose the dose, well, you also have to the think dose. of also. Fair I mean, enough. a lot of our stone formers aren't chronic kidney disease patients with a lot of comorbid conditions, and many of them don't need a, or or won't tolerate a larger dose than twelve and a half of hydrochlorothiazide. I I have multiple patients that they they really only have stones, and so I can't give them more than that. Yeah. Well, you know. Uh, you know, the other thing I, I just want to point out is that a lot of what the, that assigned thiazide dose is because it's a combo pill. Oh, that's interesting. And so when you say this stone form is on a thiazide at 12 and a half milligrams or 25 milligrams, it's because it's with an ACE inhibitor. It's with <laughs> an R. And so it's it's just because it's a choice. And, that, and you know, I, look, I have always told people that I like choosing a drug that treats two things, three things at once. And if, you, if you're going to be... If you have hypertension, stone disease, and bone disease, great. Put them on a thiazide. You know, it's cheap and it's, you're treating three diseases. And But, you know, they often choose a, a dose that they're comfortable with for the disease that they're comfortable with. Oh, I like that. Sure. Sure, that makes sense. Nyan, are we done with, uh, are we we're, done we're with done. methods? We are Does, done with methods. So what I usually ask our experts is uh, I want you to grade the methods. Give it an A, B, C, or D. Sounds like you guys aren't delighted with the methods. You guys have some pretty interesting concerns. Megan, you go first. I've never graded a methods before. I mean, I think that I already mentioned that I had issues with, you know, I wanted more of the patients to be actually hypercalceric. And then I I also would not have chosen hydrochlorothiazide or any of these lower doses as the drug choice. I would have chosen either chlorothaladone or endapamide. And so- there just wasn't enough diabetes, was there? You just wanted more diabetes. Megan, you're going to have to live with that, okay? So, no, <laughs> so for that reason, I'm, I'm actually going to give it a, a you know, I, but I will say it's a large trial. It's the largest trial that we've had in terms of stone. So like there's definitely, you know, some, you know, it's it's not an F or a D, but I'm going to, you know, I'm going to give it in the 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 BC range, because to me, I have issues. A BC. I have, I have issues so with you, the drug choice and, uh, and some inclusion criteria. And this is the University of Chicago, which is notoriously <laughs> tough on, on the curve. Yeah, that's right. It's a tough grade. <laughs> I, I gave Megan a C when she took renal physiology. 
I kept letter grades for myself. <laughs> oh, oh, man, the grade book comes out. John, give it a grade. I, I give it a B. You know, look, it, it was a huge undertaking. They did CT scans, which I think was fantastic. I've, you know, carped a little bit about their criteria for for stone growth, et cetera. But, you know, compared to, you know, the past history of the stone field, they've done what people did in the past, mostly. And I don't even blame them for the not focusing on hypercalcuric patients because, you know, there were two or three thiazide trials before that were non-selected. They were just calcium stone formers that were successful. And so, you know, they did things that had been shown to work before and they repeated them. So it's not ridiculous. What I, my biggest complaint about their method is I would not have included the 12 and a half milligram. You know, no one has shown that 25 milligrams of hydrochlorothiazide works. So to go to a really low dose was mm-hmm. a stretch. So if they could only do four mm-hmm. groups, I would have dropped the 12 and a half milligrams and then added either, you know, a twice a day dose of hydrochlorothiazide or compared it to a long acting drug like endapamide or clothalidone. And just to put something in, in place for you, Joel, because I am so much older than everybody else on this panel, endapamide came out and was being pushed by drug reps when I was a resident. And it was being pushed preferentially for diabetics because it caused less problems in diabetics. That's what the drug reps taught me when I was a resident. Perfect diuretic for diabetics. <laughs> well, and, and it's and that's the thing to know is that the drug reps give great advice to residents. That's a good, great lesson there. And I hope that residents but I think are that a free sandwich. Hey, talk to your program director about why you don't have enough drug reps coming in and giving you good medical education. These are things that we need to really work on. <laughs> See, the residents get fed and they get medical education. What's what's there to not like? So can I just bring something up? We're moving on sort of, but you guys have touched on it. And I just want to make sure that we circle back to this, but talking about the long acting thiazides versus the short acting thiazides. And if you read, there are a number of letters to the editor in New England Journal of Medicine about this. And then the authors respond. And and one of the main criticisms was that hydrochlorothiazide is a short acting drug and that what it's got eight to 15 or six to nine hour half-life. And then the authors are saying actually that when they did the studies that it seemingly that the function of the drug seemed to have a much longer acting, at least when used chronically, a much more long acting activity. And I'm just curious what your guys' thoughts are on this. Yeah, they're they're sort of saying that it's not the pharmacokinetics that matter, you know, pharmacodynamically, that effect may be longer, it may be, you know, more than nine hours. Yeah. I mean, people talk about, you know, the half-life of the drug, which is a pharmacokinetic measure of the drug in the blood kind of study versus the diuretic duration. Though I don't think the hydrochlorothiazide is actually that much different. They overlap a lot. Certain other drugs uh, seem seem to be different. It's certainly certainly much shorter than clothalidone and endapamide, you know, whether it is shorter than those. And you kind of wonder that the urine is probably going to be most concentrated at night. And if you're taking your hydrochlorothiazide in the morning, you know, there's hardly going to be any effect at night. And, and maybe that's when you're forming the stones. Again, I'm speculating, uh, but but maybe a bunch of stone formation is happening at night. You know, it's, it, I'm going to do, I'm going to do a, a little uh, plug for a study I did with uh, Goldfarb in which we did uh, 12-hour urine collections on clothalidone versus hydrochlorothiazide. And I'm in the process of doing the data analysis right now. So oh. hopefully that'll come out sometime in the near future because that is that is a 
question. What you know, you know, does a hydrochlorothiazide hypercalcuric uh, response wear off? I mean, when people talk about its duration of action, they're not looking at calcium, which is the marker that I care about for this disease. Right. Um, and that's really, and so that's something we've actually done. And, and we did we did clothalidone versus hydrochlorothiazide. Meg, um, Megan, what, what, what's your diuretic of choice in your stone clinic? So I, I use indapamide and Anna Zisman use indapamide. And I think Fred's still using chlorthalidone. And Elaine Worcester, she's also a member of our stone program on the research side right now. She, I think, used to use indapamide before she switched just to research with us. How, how far do you have to walk to find a stone specialist that uses hydrochlorothiazide? Uh, I they don't, don't make shoes that good, do they? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I mean, there's, there are people who will come to me on it, but typically a urologist has placed them on like a 12 and a half before sending them to me type of, you know, just like a low yeah. dose to sort of g- cover g- them. To g- get give them, them, them a placebo to, exactly. to get them out the door. Yeah. Gotcha. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. So, uh, Sophie, you're doing our results. Okay. So there were... 1,335 patients that underwent screening and 416 met eligibility criteria. 105 are randomized to the 12.5 milligram hydrochlorothiazide arm, 108 to the 25 milligram, 101 to the 50 milligram, and 102 to the placebo group. From a demographic perspective, uh, the characteristics were balanced. Um, However, being Swedes, it was mostly males and mostly white. So ninety-eight percent white, twenty percent female. So one of the, one of the to- one of the things that people keep telling me about stones is it used to be a men's disease, and now it more and more is becoming more egalitarian. The balance between men and women is coming closer together. Is that is that is that what you guys are really seeing, or is that just what we hear at ASN? That's true. It's they, they, the glass ceiling has been broken. Women are catching up rapidly. <laughs> It's a wrong glass ceiling for sure. Not everything's good. It's a glass floor, not a ceiling. (laughs) Okay. But they still had 80% men. Is that that what it was? It was 80% Mm -hmm. men in the study. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Oh, and I'm sorry. And and about the race, is there any race data on kidney stones that we should be aware of? Is that something that's been investigated? Is that something that, is there disparity there? Yeah, I think the person who's probably written the most on is probably Anna Zisman, if John, if if that's accurate, I don't know if you know, but yeah, so there's definitely, there are more Caucasian, but there are a lot of, you know, black individuals who form kidney stones and we have a really large group at the UFC that, that forms them. And Anna has a huge group of people and has done, has a couple papers and like see Jason a couple of years ago where Anna uh, did some work on looking at some of the differences in urine composition between the two different uh, people. Yeah, I agree completely with what Megan said, but I just want to point out the disease is so common that to say it's a white person's disease, you know, you have to recognize it still affects 8% of the black population. It's just that it affects 16% of the white population. So it's still ridiculously common in all populations in this country. Gotcha. Gotcha. And that's sort of in the U.S., right? Like I'm sure stones are more common in, you know, in, in the Middle East or in other uh, in other parts of the world. Yeah, they all have their own different types of stones and different stone rates. That's clearly true. The stone rates in the Middle East are quite high for completely different reasons than the U.S. And and in, in like South Africa, where they've done some studies, stone rates in the African ancestry people is, is much lower than in the than the European ancestry folks. And, and as are their urine chemistry is tremendously different. So, right, But in, in a lot of those places, it's not just race. It's also socioeconomic status. 
Okay. Uh, so getting back to the median urinary calcium excretion was 244 milligrams uh, per 24 hours. I think the range was 165 to 340. Those are interquartiles, right? Mm-hmm. The interquartile we're at there. range. And then gotcha. the percent who met the criteria or the definition of hypercalceria, which was greater than 200 milligrams per 24 hours, was 63%. Gotcha. So just the stone experts, you look at this table one, this looked like your typical stone patient or just like, wow, that's weird because this. You know, I don't think these people are different in any significant way from a lot of the earlier studies uh, for their baseline mm-hmm. calcium excretion. For the prior unselected studies, they usually had urine calcium excretions between 250 and 300 on average. And that's kind of where this study Mm -hmm. is for the unselected population. Okay. And I I know we'd alluded to the fact that they tend to be whiter than average. It's 99 to 100% white people in this study. So it's like really white. Bunch of Swedes. (laughs) It's very Swedes. It's Swiss. Okay. Swiss, Swiss. Oh, a bunch of Swiss. Oh. Prepare for the hate oh, mail. The hate mail. I have to go back and now. correct that one. We just well, you know, you know what they call it when they when they do a blood test in the Swiss. They call it bleed the Swede. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's see here. Where am I? Table one. Ah, uh, yeah, we're done we're with table, table one. one. It's done, skis. That's a short table one. So, from a non-adherence perspective, which was defined as missing more than 20% of the daily doses of hydrochlorothiazide or placebo, it was pretty high, 26% in the placebo, 15 in the 12.5 milligram group, 24 in the 25 milligram group, and 26% in the 50 milligram group. So coming to our primary endpoint, uh, this was our composite of symptomatic or radiologic recurrence of kidney stones. In the placebo group, 59% reached the composite endpoint. And there was no difference compared to the 12 and a half, 25 and 50 milligram groups. And respectively, it was 59%, 56% and 49%. And then this was essentially consistent across the subgroup analyses. And just a reminder, the power analysis was assuming a 0.45 recurrence rate. So So they actually had a higher rate of outcomes than they powered the study for. So that's a good sign that this is not an underpowered And then can can we get like a stats check? Like the the, those numbers are going down as the dose of thiazide is going up, but the p-value for trend is not significant. Basically, Swap, tell me what that means. So uh, uh, Nayan didn't talk about the, that that part of the analysis at all. I have to give you something to talk about during this podcast. Well. But you're exactly right. They're looking for a trend there. They're trying to show uh, you're not doing a pairwise comparison, right? One thing you could do is you could compare just the 50 milligram to the placebo and say, hey, it works. Uh, but you expect there to be a biological gradient. So 12.5 should be a little bit better. 25 should be a little bit better than 12.5 and 50 should be a little bit better than 25. And they don't see that there at all. So it's basically, you know, the the test is looking for that kind of a trend. Yeah, but if I like look at it, the numbers are going down. I just need to ignore the axis. <laughs> the statistics say I can't do that. That's what you're telling me. Uh, they are not going down enough. Okay. Yeah. Not going down enough. Okay. Okay. So moving on to the secondary endpoint. This is when they looked at the individual endpoints. So from a symptomatic recurrence perspective, there is no significant difference between all all doses. Radiologic occurrence, it was significant. So 49% in placebo, 
45% in the 12 and a half milligrams, 32% in the 25 milligrams and 34% in the 50 milligram hydrochlorothiazide group. So the 25 milligram dose was the first dose. Correct. The 12 and a half was the no 30, difference. The 25 and the 50. But the 25 and the 50. And so again, this is the radiology yes. recurrence, right? And, and John talked about mm-hmm. this before, where the symptomatic recurrence might be, you know, old stones that people are passing, whereas perhaps the radiologic recurrence is a more powerful outcome am i sort of am i pulling at i don't want to overstate say it's but the more powerful outcome because you know symptomatic stones are important of course and most people would say that's the more powerful outcome it's just that we don't absolutely know which are new stones and which mm-hmm. are old stones you know the the other thing just making a comment about the power analysis and the number of events they they ended up with more events than they predicted and i suspect that's because they use ct scans and are able to do more accurately oh say this stone is bigger than it was two years ago. And whether that's one millimeter or who knows what size differential they used, but that, that that's much better than doing it on an, on an IVP or old uh, renal tomograms, you know, that, that you can finally get a much more accurate measure. So I think that's why they had so many more me- events than they expected. Uh, John, most of our listeners are less than 40 years old. Can you tell them what an IVP is? <laughs> imagine that. But, but I'll tell you one thing that's changed, just thinking about uh, rates of diagnosing disease, because we no longer do IVPs, very few people get diagnosed with medullary sponge kidney anymore. Crickets on that one. We're all stumped. <laughs> we don't have anything smart to say. Never diagnosed. We're like, that's very yeah. interesting, John, yeah. looking up medullary sponge yeah, kidney very quickly. Yeah. Same response when I said that to my wife. <laughs> Yeah, my, oh my husband gosh. complains about all the nephrology jokes. He doesn't like coming to any sort of social interactions with us. But again, going back going back to Josh's point okay. and the radiologic recurrence. Uh, so the for the 25 milligram compared to the placebo as reference, the stone radiologic recurrence was lower. So that 95% in confidence intervals do not cross one. But again, when they do a trend analysis, it's not significant. Because, you know, 25 and 50 look very similar. So it's not that 50 was better than 25 somehow, right? So it's it's kind of like... Yeah, it was weird. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Moving on. And of those with new stones, there wasn't a significant difference. But And I, I'm curious if there's anything that you guys, when reading that, thought from this. Like They said, and I can read it to you. And we, um, In the placebo group, there were 67 new stones detected in 94 patients, 59 new stones in 98 patients in the 12 and a half milligram group, 45 of 101 in the 25 milligram um, hydrochlorothiazide group. And that one was the one that sort of came closest to statistical significance based on the rate ratio. And then in the 50 milligram, 46 of 90 stones. And I, I don't know if that's something even worth paying attention to, but it was, you know, published in the in the main manuscript. So I viewed that as hopeful and I realized it didn't reach statistical significance, but it seemed, you know, the new stones, you know, it, it seems to be more objectively real than the, the less uh, well-defined growth of stones. And, you know, I, I view that as a, uh, a, you know, at least close to a positive finding. I really I can't, I can't uh, push it too much because it didn't reach statistical significance. But just looking at the size of the numbers, it, it, it surprised me that it didn't. Yeah. Okay. Well, so moving on to the changes in the lab variables, there was a lower urinary calcium excretion rate compared to placebo. 
Um, we also observed that the urinary citrate excretion decreased and the urinary oxalate excretion increased. And I am curious uh, to hear what your thoughts about why that occurred. So they had decreased urine calcium, increased urinary oxalate, and, and decreased urine citrate? Correct. Excretion, yes. But I think only the calcium change was significant, right? The other ones were all like didn't hit their significance threshold. Oh, is that right? And that's what I'm wondering. The deg- For you guys, the degree of you know, reductions in citrate and changes in oxalate that might counteract the benefits. How do you view those in absolute numbers? I don't know enough about the how much, you know, citrate and oxalate excretion. Well, so the reason for the citrate reduction is because when you become hypokalemic, you become um, hypocitraturic. So that's the physiology. But then, so it's exactly what I would expect in terms of the higher dose of hydrochlorothiazide caused a greater reduction in the urine citrate. We also saw that with the hypokalemia. You're using the indapamide and you, you're you tracking their urine citrate as part of your, st- and you see this routinely, this drop in the urine citrate? If they become, if they're, if they're urine. Only if they become hypokalemic. Yeah. If their serum K goes down. Yeah. So if their serum K comes down into the, like in the, into the upper threes, for example, I'll probably start them on, and I see their urine citrate go down, which is what I would expect it to go down. If it goes down meaningfully enough, then I'll replete their K. I'll start them on K supplements. With K citrate or with K chloride? Uh, it depends. Uh, I've done it. I do it with both. It sort of depends. Uh, like if they're a calcium phosphate stone former, I might do KCL. And then if. Because then you don't want to alkalinize their urine too much. Exactly. So you'll go K chloride. And if they have, and otherwise, if it's a traditional K, uh, calcium oxalate stone, you're, pick, you're reaching for K citrate in that case. Typically, situation. unless I have another reason to not. But yeah, a lot of times I might as well just use potassium citrate. Yeah. Nyan has some thoughts on chloride. I also have thoughts that I cannot get potassium citrate for my patients. Uh, it, like insurance is fine. It's, it's expensive. My, yeah. I, Come to the VA, you guys. What is I wrong literally with have you? all my patients on uh, <laughs> Moonstone because they can't get potassium citrate. Moonstone costs money too. Because gold, and you get and, and you get kick, kick and back. you get kickback. I didn't. From, I didn't disclose that. Yeah, in everybody my, uh, does. Everybody's. Yeah, that's right. We're all at, we're all on the gold far program. Not on the gold we like to call it. How much, how, much, how, how much money are we talking about here? I'm happy to get on the program for the right price. You should see the car I drive, oh, yeah. Josh. Is all I'm saying. <laughs> Guys, that is just a joke. I get no money from Dr. Goldfarb. I get no money from Moonstone. You know, back to the uh, potassium stuff. If you come to Stone Camp, I'll show you some slides from the LinkedIn data, and uh, and you'll see that. Uh, if we, you know, just take people who put on thiazides as a group, their citrates go down. And the other side of it is that you can start to see the citrate fall in a population once their potassium gets below four. Four. Just below four. Yeah. So I've always always taken this tack that if my patient, I don't let their potassium fall below where it started before I put them on the thiazide. So if they started at 4.3, I like to keep them around 4.3. So is it it common practice and to just say, okay, I'm starting someone on a thiazide. It's not uncommon. As long as you know what the urine uh, analysis looks like and you know what the stone analysis is to just be like, I'm going to put them on both. I know I'm going to drop their potassium. That's therefore going to drop their citrate and just sort of throw them on them both. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's probably someone who does that. What I do is I get labs. I just get serum labs because it's hard to get necessarily a 24-hour urine right away because they've just probably done one for me. But I'll just get serum labs in one to two weeks. And if I see, to John's point, if I see their K go down even a little bit, definitely if it goes into the threes, I'll go ahead and start them on potassium. 
The other thing I do, because I've, I've got the data when I start, is I look at their potassium in their urine to start with, and I look at their sodium in their urine to start with. If they eat a lot of salt and they don't eat much potassium, then I'm going to probably fire them up potassium to start with. If they've got a, if they're excreting 100 million equivalents of potassium a day at baseline, they're they're big potassium eaters, and they probably don't need the potassium supplement. I'm used to the idea of thiazides reducing urinary calcium concentration. That makes sense to me, but at the same time, people still eat calcium and have to get rid of calcium. Um, how does someone drop their urine calcium excretion? this amount and still stay in calcium balance, if that makes sense? Like, where, mm-hmm. where's it going? Is it that's going? That's a brilliant question. Out? I would not, I would not that cut that out at all. <laughs> that's why, that's why thiazide <laughs> is uh, associated with fewer fractures. Doesn't it go to their bones? It's all going to bone is the idea. Yeah. And also, you know, uh, we'll, we'll give Fred some credit here. He did a balance study on, th- on clothalidone, one of somebody's favorite drug, you know, pre and post clothalidone and showed, yes, they went into positive calcium balance. But one of the big things that changed is they absorb less calcium from their gut. They lessen the urine, less absorption from the gut and more positive balance. And if I can find that, I'll, I'll give you the reference. See, doesn't everybody want to go to stone camp now? It's like, it's kind of cool. It's cool. Everybody wants to go to stone camp. Are there like sing-alongs and campfires too? That seems like it would be a nice after the third drink there we go. that makes sense wow i want to just go to for the third 99 drink bottles of camp. water okay. on the wall <laughs> <laughs> okay. but, but in that table you also have the urinary supersaturation right 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 uh, right, right. And, sorry and, we'll yeah. get to that so the urinary relative supersaturation ratios were not consistently lower than those in the placebo group and this is what I was wondering. I mean, we started out which, with such not low, but not incredibly high urine, urinary calcium levels. So, and really, I think the calciura reduction in this group was reasonably modest compared to some of the other studies. It was like nine to seventeen percent. So, if you're reducing the calciuria to that degree, is that really going to dramatically change urinary calcium saturation much or not? Their main problem with the saturation, not necessarily the problem with the study itself, but the problem with their secondary outcomes, which is the urine chemistries, is that the calcium went down trivially. You know, you, you went down 9 to 17% was the reduction in calcium across the, the various groups. And the oxalate went up 15 to uh, 35%. And so, yes, the absolute numbers aren't that impressive for oxalate, but its percent increase was tremendous, unfortunate for the study. And so it more than balanced it out. And that's why the supersaturation for calcium oxalate didn't really change is because they were going from 30 milligrams of oxalate at baseline to 37 to 40 milligrams at follow-up. And so the supersaturation uh, change gets completely blunted. I'm looking at urine calciums for 24 hours. They go down by about 42 milligrams across the board. Uh, 50 for or 50 for 50 milligrams of hydrochlorothiazide. Yeah, Is that, am I looking at that right? 9 to 17 percent. But in terms of percentage, what John's saying is that the percentage is small. It's not the absolute amount. It's, yeah. it's the it's the relative amount. Yeah, especially when you consider offsetting it with oxalate. Mm. You know, mm-hmm. and cal- why does the oxalate go up? What's the story there? That's that's an interesting issue. Go ahead, Megan. Your choice. Well, <laughs> the short answer is I don't really know. I mean, I do have a theory. I'd be interested what your theory is, John. One possible thought is that they, you know, they know they're in a stone trial. They know they're in a stone trial that's focused on calcium, and so they 
subtly, consciously or unconsciously ate less dietary calcium because there's, of course, that thought. I mean, I know they were counseled to have normal calcium, but that's one thought that potentially they did reduce their dietary calcium intake and that increased their urine oxalate. That is completely speculative, obviously. I don't have a good explanation for it. I mean, you know, it reeks of some dietary change that they didn't expect. And whether it was, you know, they they went against study protocol and ate more calcium, they certainly didn't follow study protocol in regards to sodium intake. The other possibility is that they were part of the study protocol was just to eat more healthy and they eat more fruits and vegetables. And when you do that, you eat more oxalate in general. And so, but one way or the other, they got more oxalate. It's not, you know, if you look at all the other thiazide trials, some found oxalate went up, some found oxalate went down. And it's just been all over the place historically in relation to thiazide trials without any clear signal one way or the other. So it's been hard to relate it to the thiazide use itself, but well, I'm looking at the supplement. You hear that swap? I'm looking at the supplement. I'm looking at the supplement and the, the oxalate level goes up in the placebo also. It's just, it's hard to toss it onto the thiazide as a thiazide effect, right? If it's. I think it has to be a changes in diet, some sort of change in diet. Yeah. I, and I, I swap, you got to start reading the supplement. There's a lot of information. I, I don't know. I don't know what your resistance to this is. It really is. It really is the meat of this and then, uh <laughs> That there's no one like a you know a uh, convert right the zealot of a convert. Oh my god! Yeah. <laughs> He's gonna start going door to door with the supplement, <laughs> spreading the good news. Uh, but the thing, I mean, we were talking about oxalate. The changes in oxalate and uh, citrate were not statistically significant by themselves. But I guess when you, even if it's a small change for the supersaturation for the individual patient, that is what matters, right? Well, yeah, I mean, the supersaturation calculation it takes in every chemistry they measure in the urine. And, you know, it, and you'll see this sometimes that the individual chemistries don't change statistically, you know, but if they, if they all move together in one way to change the supersaturation or if they move against each other to cancel each other out, you'll get no change in supersaturation or you'll get an exaggerated change. And so, yeah, it, 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 because it takes into account, you know, 10 to 15 numbers, depending on how much they measured, uh, it, you know, you, you can get surprising results with the supersaturation. And, and for folks who don't look at supersaturation ratios all the time, like, can you help us frame this? Like, is this like size 18 <laughs> font on the Lithlink report? Is this like size 72 font, like the aliens are invading? <laughs> Lithlink report, like, like how bad is this number of, of 7.9 for a calcium oxalate supersaturation? The, the calcium oxalate supersaturations are rather pedestrian, Okay. Okay. That's not, they're not particularly impressive one way or the other. I'll tell you. Supersaturation, they went down by 1.2 in the 50 milligram. Is that what you got? Do you guys like stand up and say, you're doing great when you get a, de- a, a delta of 1.2 or you're like, that sucks. My, my dog gets 1.2. My, my goal is to get it to drop by 50%. Oh, okay. That's helpful. That's, that's what my goal is. It doesn't mean I always succeed. Megan, what's your goal? Yeah, I mean- I'll also sometimes take what I can get, but yeah, that's it. That's a good goal. Yeah, I try to get. Less you're looking than four. for. You're looking for. You're looking to cut it in half. I'll tell you what's surprising. I, I try about to get it less than four. Yeah, and less than four is a target. Mm-hmm. Got it. But I'll, I'll tell you one thing that surprised me out of this study is that calcium phosphate supersaturation is so high. Very high. Yeah. The, the, the calcium oxalate, and to see them at, at, a, at a mean of, of let's say two and a half, whatever that would be for the whole population, is surprisingly high. For calcium phosphate, I would aim for less than one. Hmm. Oh, you can get that under one. Yeah. And so it's a, it's a really surprisingly high number. And you can't 
piece it together because they don't give you the urine pH. I see urine pH. I see urine pH. I'm looking at the uh, 5.95, 5.9. What, I'm, Wait, you're in this, you're in- John, I'm in the supplement. It's page 33 in the supplement, urine pH. For the record, until a year ago, Joel had never cracked the PDF of a supplement <laughs> link. Like, this is this is all new. He's turned over a new leaf this I, year. And, and beyond that cracked, I would belittle people <laughs> for opening the supplement. Not good enough for the text, not good enough for me. But yeah, I. But let me go back. You know, uh, so John said the calcium oxalate uh, supersaturation is pretty pedestrian. At the same time, we saw that the recurrence rate was like, you know, more than 50%. So, and then the calcium phosphate uh, supersaturation is so high. So do you suspect that a bunch of recurrences were not calcium oxalate and perhaps calcium phosphate or something else? I know I'm purely speculating here, but are, are you surprised by the recurrence rate considering the pedestrian calcium oxalate supersaturation? I, 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 again, I, I suspect the recurrence rate is a lot to do with the, the fine quality CT of their scan. radiology. But I, I am concerned about the the uh, calcium phosphate supersaturation. And now that Joel has read the supplement for me, <laughs> tells me the urine pH is 5.9. Now I'm concerned about the quality of their supersaturation calculation because I don't think that I don't think that's correct. Oh, so, so walk us... Now, you didn't want me to say that. You can no, edit no, no, that no, out. No, no, oh, that's no, no, Challenge no, no. That's fire. So, so explain that to me. Well, it's the, the supersaturation of calcium phosphate is extraordinarily pH dependent. And so if you think about it, the, the, the four major factors that really go into calcium phosphate supersaturation are the calcium excretion, which is high-ish, the urine volume to give you the concentration, which is okay. It's not that really low. The pH, which is kind of on the low side for a, for this population, below six, and then the phosphate in the urine, which Joel, tell us what the phosphate is in the supplement. Um, he wasn't, he wasn't prepared for phosphate, this one, John. They do not give you that data. They do not list that in the supplement. Yeah. Be my answer. I don't have it. Yeah. I'm, I'm just surprised that they have supersaturations that high. And so that's all I can comment. If they're using equal and that's the output from it, I'm just surprised that it's that high. Okay. Excellent. Sophie, uh, where are we? I think we might be done. Hold on. Oh, wait, hold on. Yeah, sorry, sorry. No adverse reactions. Come on. Do not, do not deny well, me my that, adverse did, reactions. Did we talk about all the salt these guys are eating and how that's going to impact Well, didn't we already everything? get to that fact that they weren't eating as much salt as we thought they were eating? But, oh, wait. No, no, yeah. they're eating a what ton of salt. Their 24 hour? This, uh, yeah, hold on. I have to look at it now. Yeah. They're 24 like hours. They're 200. Urine right? sodium excretion is close to 200 here for uh Double. Well, they're on a diuretic. No, <laughs> that's not how it works. I don't. I don't know about this book Burton podcast now. With that. <laughs> Are you the salt whisperer? Yeah. You see, Nate, when you're on a diuretic, your intestine absorbs three times more salt than before. You end up in negative salt. No, but, but you're right. At baseline, they were on a, a, a fairly high salt diet. I think. I think the range was 168 yeah. to 197 in the population. Yeah. And then after mm-hmm. intervention, they were in the 190s. You know, is it concerning? Yeah, we all fail with our assault restrictions with our patients. But this is like every other thiazide and stone trial. You know, you know, Borgie's uh, wonderful, uh, you know, low-sodium, low-protein, normal-calcium diet trial in the New England Journal a number of years ago. Uh, was a great trial, but he was trying to get people on 50 millimoles of sodium a day, and they ended up at 120. He failed too. You know, 
no one no one seems to really get their patients to uh, as a population to do their their sodium restrictions as you like. At least they were all within sort of the th- same range, so they at least controlled from that perspective. Everybody <laughs> was eating an absurd amount of sodium. Got it. Okay, very good. It is an impressive amount of sodium. You understand why these guys are recurrent so, uh, stone formers. Well, well, uh, no, this is the average urine sodium in the United States. 190? I think that's higher than what average is. It's like 178 in the NHANES study. Pretty close. Uh, okay. <laughs> okay. Okay. So finishing off, with this is adverse events. Uh, patients that received thiazides had a greater uh, uh Incidence of new onset diabetes, hypokalemia, gout, skin allergy, and plasma creatinine exceeding 150% of baseline level. And then the series adverse effects, though, were not different between the groups. No, so the new onset diabetes and the number of patients and number of events are actually always equal as they should be. Okay, that makes sense. Okay. And that also wasn't dose-related. A lot more diabetes with 25 milligrams and 50 milligrams. Riddle me that. Yeah, the numbers right? are small. The numbers are small. The, the hypokalemia definition was that three again, like that mm-hmm. really, really low definition. Yeah. So probably a lot of people were in the low threes more than this. Yeah. Did anyone dig into the serious adverse events in the placebo group? I'm just not yeah. used to thinking about what harm a placebo is going to do that's, that's that serious. Yeah, but, but often, you know, if, if, it's, if they get hospitalized, it's counted for any reason that gets counted as an SAE. If they go to the ER for any reason, it gets counted as an SAE. So, you know, over three years, a bunch of them may have gone for, you know, a bunch of other. If they, someone falls, breaks a leg, that's an SAE. There were, it looks like there was excess surgical and medical procedures in the placebo group. I'm just kind of looking at the um, – it's, it's at page 36 of the supplement. I'll tell you I didn't yeah, look at so. that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah, Sophie, done. are we done? Okay. Megan, give us your – what are your thoughts on this study? Give you the, the, your big picture view. Picture picture view for me is that it still is not changing my practice. So I'm still using thiazides, still using adapamide. And I'm, you know, I think it's a study that I respect in terms of its size and certain things, but I don't think it is, to me, it's not compelling enough from um, some of the criticisms I've already laid out for me to change my Lay them out. Lay them out again. Just give us a a summary. The fact that um, the the drug of choice uh, was not what I would have chosen. And so you don't like you don't like hydrochlorothiazide. You said you're an indapamide user, and you choose indapamide because. So to me, I'm fine with indapamide or chlorothaladone. There was one meta-analysis, I think, in the hypertension world a couple of years ago, maybe 2015, I want to say 2013, that um, showed slightly better metabolic profile with indapamide versus chlorothaladone. So that is what. Well, that's that's what the drug reps are telling John. <laughs> <laughs> They're much better diabetes. <laughs> so, so that's what that's what the endeavor. So, yeah, but I would choose a longer acting. Uh, and so, if I, you know, if I were to redesign, I would choose either chlorothaladone or I would choose one of the longer acting. And then, and then would have made a inclusion criteria with hypercalceria. And I would have been a lot clearer in terms of the outcome, focusing on new stone growth and some of these issues in terms of passage of old stones. I would have tried to be clear with the definitions to clear that up. And- so one of the things one of the things that we didn't cover in the results is they did do sensitivity analysis. And even when they did the sensitivity analysis, the patients with the hypercalciuria still didn't see a signal for the thiazide improvement. I just want to I just want to point that out. I, I I'm not. Okay. And so my question, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to knock the tennis ball back to your side. I'm going to say, 
does this kind of change your priors? Does this make you say, boy, we've really accepted a lot of this hydrochlorothiazide data. And now we have a high and I, and a high, a high quality, well done randomized controlled trial. And you may have some quibbles about the outcomes here and there, but there really, it, it was hard to find a signal anyway. Yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, we see the one signal. I know that, you know, we see the one signal with the radiographic, uh, you know, the instance of radiographic, you know, we know the P for trend, but it was yep. not significant, yep. but 25 but, and 50. But there was so, a signal there. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So so those types, I think it's it's those types of signals that I'm latching on. And I'm also taking it in context with all the other, you know, yes, the other trials have issues too, lots of issues, and, and which is why this needed to be redone. But I think taking it into composite with everything else, it, it's not compelling enough for me to change my practice. But I hope that we, I hope that this is a sign that of a couple of things. We do need more therapies in stones. We do need more trials like this in kidney stones. And I'm not, you know, I have no love with of thiazides. If, so, if, if someone does the trial and makes some of these changes that I, that I'm recommending and it still doesn't show any su- substantial signal, I'll call up my patients and start taking them off of it. You know, if, if I have a compelling enough reason, this to me was not a compelling enough trial, especially when I take into context with the other. Uh, data that I have. Uh, the, the next question I'm going to have is patient comes into your clinic and says, you've been getting me on this thiazide for 16 years or what have you. And I just saw this in the, in the New York Times. They said this stuff doesn't work. Have you had that? Ha- hey, have you had that happen? Did you have somebody say, hey, what about this? It, I have not had anyone say anything to me about it. None of my patients have said anything to me about it quite yet. Of course, it's I will tell you, I'm just in this world, podcast, you're very intimidating and I can see your patients <laughs> not wanting to say it. Okay. I can understand that. Okay. <laughs> No, of course it's come up, you know, with colleagues, but none of my patients have brought it up to me quite yet. So, have you have 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 your colleagues been like tossing this in your face? Have you been getting? Have you had to defend your whole field from uh, from the with this? And it's mostly been just friendly inquiries. Say, hey, what do you think about this trial? This, you know, it's a pretty big study that came out, one of the biggest in your field. What do you think? And so, it, just friendly discussion. Uh, just good thing it was published in a, in a low profile <laughs> exactly, journal. Would have been right, embarrassing exactly. if it had been published in the good, good thing. It didn't, like good thing it didn't get a late breaking abstract at ASN. Otherwise people would know about it. Yeah. Thank God. Uh, yeah. Which was relegated to poster. You know, it's good thing it was made a poster. How did that happen? Yeah, How did that maybe, happen? Maybe oh, John or Megan were, they gotta, were they gotta put, on they gotta put, that one being like, no, no, we don't want this to get out to the public. It's <laughs> <laughs> the, the Thiazide Mafia squashing this story. Were either of you guys reviewers of this paper by chance? No. I was not. No. Yeah. Uh, okay. Okay. Are we allowed to even ask that question? Okay, conflict you of always interest. ask it. You know, can lie. Yeah. You'd have to. Yeah, John's winking right now just no, for the no, people that are not watching the video feed. He's like, he's not. <laughs> I would tell, believe me, I would tell you if I reviewed this paper. You can tell I didn't. John, what's your what's your take on the study? Um, Final, you know. So this study supports what I've always said: don't use hydrochlorothiazide once a day for kidney stone patients. So I view this as a highly positive trial to show that my past biases were correct. And that's, you know, I, I basically will echo what Megan says. I, I recommend you, I recommend the long-acting thiazides. That's what I generally use. The, the thing that bothers me most about the study is I think it's underdosed. And, you know, the, the percent change and in, in that in the urine calcium is pretty much lower than every other thiazide trial that reported it. So if you're looking, if you believe that thiazides work by changing urine calcium, then it's underdosed. And if you look at the other trials, the thiazide percent decrease ranges from 22 to 45%. I mean, the calcium decrease. So you're sitting there at, you know, 
9, 14, and 17 percent and wondering why the drug didn't work when you didn't give enough of it. So that's my that's my take on it. I think, you know, just a, a comment, it is interesting because it's a New England journal. It, of course, overwhelms everything else that's been done in the field. And, you know, as Megan pointed out, you know, I got a ton of emails and phone calls from people. In fact, we had a, a, a very large uh, email thread with about 50, 60 people on it talking about this uh, and what it meant. And out of that generated two of the responses to the New England Journal in their letters. Here's my speculation about this study. If this study had been positive, the New England Journal would have rejected it as not being important. They would have said, just another thiazide trial and that the 50 milligram per day dose worked and the 12 and a half didn't, you know, send this to AJKD. And we know thiazides work. So what's new about it, right? So the fact that it was negative is what made it, I think, made it New England Journal level. And if it had been positive, it would have been just ho-hum. This is more applicable to the population that we're treating. And not everybody's going to be able to tolerate endapamide at, you know, at a certain dose or chlorothaladone at a certain dose. Like a lot of them are not hypertensive patients and not being someone that treats as many stone patients as you all, how many of them can you successfully get on an appropriately dosed thiazide in order to treat them? I mean, a lot of people are, are going to tolerate or a lot of physicians will only feel comfortable treating their patient with 12 and a half milligrams of hydrochlorothiazide. Maybe we can recommend them doing it twice daily. But perhaps the the bigger argument is that not everybody should be put on a whiff of a thiazide, but if they can tolerate an appropriately dosed thiazide to achieve you know calcium, you know, an increased excretion of calcium, it's appropriate. But if we can't achieve it because they won't tolerate the appropriate dosing, maybe we shouldn't even be doing it. I was going to say, Sophie, I'm going to say you you and I have had some different experiences. I've had the vast majority of my patients tolerate a a reasonably good dose of a long-acting thiazide. And, you know, I do worry about the people who walk into clinic with a, you know, a young woman with a 90 over 60 blood pressure. I do worry about them. But for most people, I've not had a problem with. I don't use much of endapamide. I have a bigger problem with chlorothaladone. So maybe that's my bigger issue. But even for chlorothaladone, I, I routinely would give, my kind of starting dose was 25 for men and, and, uh, and I would cut it down to 12 and a half for a small woman. One of the things I like about the endapamide is the 1.25 dose, because I, if I'm worried about a patient tolerating it, I'll start them there. And actually people, even if they tell me their systolic is usually like 105, I'll give them all the warnings and in, in terms of like when we're trying it out. And usually they actually, you know, they do okay. Most of them do okay. It's, I haven't had to stop it for, hypo, for symptomatic hypotension. Well, I've dose reduced for someone who, I st- who had normal blood pressure and started 2.5. I think like a couple weeks ago, I dose reduced to 1.25 and she tolerated it well. But do, you, do you get enough of a change in your urinary calcium with the 1.25 dose? Yeah, enough that I'm usually satisfied. Yeah. And it probably helps if they're eating 200 milliequivalents of sodium a day too. <laughs> or if their protein intake is high. <laughs> yeah, I'll just give you one more number just to put things in frame of reference. You know, I looked again at the Lithlink data and if the people were on thiazide, I don't know what drug they were on and I don't know what dose they were on. The average fall in calcium was 24% in out in the real out in the real world. And they got 10% here? 14 and 17% at the two highest doses. 14 and 17. And you get 24% across the board. Yeah. And so, you know, and that I I suspect part of that may be that they people reserve it for what they consider more hypercalciuric patients than what are in this trial, whatever, because the mean starting calcium in that population was 328 milligrams per day. But, you know, I just, again, I just think that this dose is used here didn't give enough of the effect that they were looking for. 
or that that I would be looking for anyway. Okay, here's my question. If you were to take a look at the universe of people that are on thiazide type diuretics, do you think that greater than 97% are on hydrochlorothiazide 25 milligrams a day or less? I think that's probably a characterization of the world of uh, the universe of thiazide use. And if that's the, and if the, and, and I think we got pretty compelling data that 25 milligrams or less of hydrochlorothiazide for un, unselected people with stones doesn't make it, 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 ain't, it ain't moving the needle. And if that's the case, maybe we should stop teaching the people that hydrochlorothiazide or th- excuse me, thiazide type diuretics is a therapy for, redu- for reducing kidney stones. Because it looks like the vast majority of people that are getting that prescription, it's not moving the needle. Yeah, but, but, and that, but the vast majority of them, may, again, I think they're getting it for hypertension. Fair enough. But I'm just saying that the generic lecture on thiazides, yeah. I give it every year. And there's a, there, I have a slide. It's got a picture of, a, uh, of an IVP just to show that I'm old. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to switch it to a CT scan because I'm feeling, feeling my age. I just say that it's good for stones. And I think that what we need to start saying is, hey, if you want to move the needle, if you want to help with stones, you can't be using hydrochlorothiazide. That we've got pretty good data that that's not doing it, especially with the once daily dosing that people are doing for thiazide. I think that's a a fair statement. And a trial of a longer acting thiazide at a higher dose would really be needed to either put the nail in the coffin here or to like solidify like, yes, this is what we should do with these patients. Yeah. And I think Josh is right there. I think this does kind of put the ball in the court of the thiazide believers. And there's a few of them here. Yeah. Come on, get your stuff together and do the trial because the New England Journal of Medicine is waving the flag that these drugs don't help move the needle on. on uh, and, and we had poo-pooed the ACP guidelines, remember, since a few years ago. And and I would say maybe they were right. Uh, you know, they said you guys don't know what you're doing. Uh, you need be- better quality. Well, I no, yeah. I, I think I think it shows. <laughs> I think it shows that the ACP was wrong. So walk us through it, John. Well, because they they said use hydrochlorothiazide at any random dose on any given patient. <laughs> they yeah, did say that. That's what they said. <laughs> they said use thiazide. On uric acid stone yeah. formers. Yeah. Because they didn't care what the stone was of. <laughs> Those were the worst guidelines ever. <laughs> we, we did poo poo them. And, and, but they. Uh, really so. Don't go back. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. Sophie would pick up with the first pick of the guidelines draft. Hey, I'm getting into that. Right now. <laughs> oh, my God. Does anybody else have any closing statements? I, this has been a delightful conversation so far. I'm I'm satisfied. Josh, can I ask something? a non-thiazide but stone-related question? Because it's Josh burning always asks questions that take um, 20 more minutes. And when you have to edit it at the end, you're like, oh, my God, Josh, <laughs> shut up. Oh, I just cut it all out. Totally fair. Jo- Again, jo- Josh, I'm doing the editing. I can include all of this. Our spouses including all have. of this. My, my wife would certainly have that. Like, cut this stuff out right now. Given the uh, like these meta-analyses of SGLT2 inhibitors in folks, are you thinking about SGLT2 inhibitors as part of your treatment of patients with kidney stones? Are you thinking about it in patients? So, Josh, before you get the question, what's what are the what are the meta-analyses show on stones and kid and SGLT2? Um, so, in some of these meta-analyses of the previously done SGLT2 inhibitor trials, uh, folks have looked at the placebo and the SGLT2 inhibitor groups. 
and found that people who are on SGLT2 inhibitors had a significantly reduced rate of new kidney symptomatic kidney stones. Was there an explanation for that? I'm going to defer to our experts about the potential explanation for that. Um, Fair enough. And Good question. There is an Good ongoing trial, at least looking at what are the metabolic effects of starting someone an SGLT2 inhibitor on their kidney stone. Yeah. stone they are very glyceric. And I'm just wondering, like, how do you interpret that data in your treatment of patients? Do you think about it in diabetic patients as like, I should do this anyway, maybe it'll help their kidney stone risk? Do you think about it in people who you're running out of other ideas of what to do with their kidney stones? Could this help? Josh, it's very, it's, it's, it's a strange finding because patients that die early, they don't get a kidney stone after they die. It's a good point. You would think that life prolonging medicines would also increase the rates of kidney stone. Increase the, the because lifetime. They increase of, the of amount of lifetime. Stones, yeah. That's a good point. Yeah. Uh, it's counterintuitive. It's to consider. Yeah. 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 It's like we need the kidney stone risk per day. Yeah. Megan, what do you got? What do you got on SGLT2 inhibitors? There was at least one study that actually had urine composition data. I don't remember exactly which one that was. And so, of course, right now at, a, you know, at this- It's fine. It's I, fine. I don't we'll remember all the details. Uh, we'll find it. But what, what was the what was the, the, the bottom line the, on that the, one? The bottom line is I think it's very compelling. And I think we need a little bit more research to better understand. So it has not entered my practice yet, but I think it's compelling. And there's certainly a couple of different investigators who I think are- Either there's the, there's one trial, and then there's a couple of people who I know are are working on getting funding for additional studies. So, John, what do you got? Yeah, I, I think that there's interesting evidence uh, accumulating. Uh, there's also you know we're I'm involved in a study looking at it in a claims data uh, set and also the Lithlink data set. We're, we're merging the data sets to find everybody who's on SGLT inhibitors and who's got a Lithlink chemistry is done so we could actually look at the results in a bigger population. Megan's so Megan's point was that the, the chemistry studies are somewhat small, but they haven't been all that remarkable. I'll just make a comment quickly that the GLP agonists also seem to be having a positive effect on stone, a, a good a reduction in stone rates, and also a very small study presented at the uh, urologic meetings last month uh, suggested there are a significant change in urine chemistries that we also need to take a look at. So things good for diabetics uh, may be good for uh, preventing kidney stones. But diabetes is an independent risk factor for kidney stones. Am I correct on yeah. that one? Yeah, pretty And, and what's, the, what's the presumed mechanism for that? Uh, so there's been some work, uh, some of the folks at UT Southwestern have done some work in terms of changes in essentially acid base uh, with like ammonia suppression. The diabetics have decreased the urinary ammonium. Yeah. And that's it, and that results in stones because uh, so there can be more. So they tend to have lower urinary pH, so they tend to be lower higher pH. risk of uric acid stones. John, you can probably speak more to some of the other physiologic changes that increase. That, that, that's correct. That they have kind of a motor, metabolic profile type. Yeah, they have to excrete their acid load preferentially as titratable acid, so they end pH. But they also probably have higher rates of calcium stones as well. And some of that is, I, I suspect, you know, if you look at them, that they tend to have higher calcium excretions and higher oxalate excretions. And, and some of it's just about consumption of, you know, food in an obese population. And GLP-1 agonists should decrease food consumption. I don't yeah. know if SGLT2 inhibitors will do that. Yeah. So it, 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 I think there's a lot, there's going to be a lot of interesting information in the next three to five years about those two drugs. Josh, you satisfied with your totally unrelated question to the p topic of yeah, the night? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> okay, we're going to move on to our tubular secretions as we click past two hours 
of recording time. I curse all of you. You know that it was my turn to edit, and that's why we're just <laughs> At least 15 minutes of that was a drink break. Don't, yeah, was don't that the first that. ever uh, freely filtered scotch break? I think so. I think so. Trust me, there will be more. There will be more. Swap, do you have a do you have a uh, uh, I always do. So um I've been reading uh, a lot of you may have read Star books of Star Wars and I recently discovered these uh, I have books. not. Uh so so I would if you do I would recommend if, if even if you don't I would recommend reading these series by written they're written by a guy called Timothy Zahn Z A H N uh and they are uh, this character called Thrawn uh, this blue-eyed, blue-skinned uh, alien called Thrawn, who is in the Star Wars uh, 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 universe, he's an alien and he is one of the bad guys. and And the books are brilliant, and uh, it, it made it to the Star Wars Rebels uh, comic books. But the more interesting part is that there is a live, uh, uh, live-action Ahsoka series where uh, there is a real-life Thrawn who is going to be brought to life by uh, Lars uh, Lars Mikkelsen. So uh, if you haven't read any of the Thrawn books, they are extremely well written uh, and fun and page turners. Excellent. So the Thrawn Star Wars books by Zahn. Thrawn by Zahn is your recommendation for your tubular secretion. Josh, you have a tubular secretion for us? Sure. I normally am promoting a new podcast or something I'm listening to. Honestly, for the last couple of weeks, our lives have been consumed by Little League Baseball. Uh, my son is on a little league team, the Mighty Muscles, and we have spent so much time watching little league games. Um, but also, like seeing the joy that little league brings nine year olds is just so much fun. And um, and we're coming to the end of the Ted Lasso season as well. And my son has adopted the motto of uh, "Baseball is life," and totally independent of having never watched a Ted Lasso episode. Um, but there's a character who who declares soccer is life. Your son is Danny. My son is Danny. And he has such a positive attitude toward the sport. And it's really just fun to see it through the eyes of a kid. And uh, even though I, I don't get paid the amount that the rest of you get paid because of the place I work, uh, I do work <laughs> at the official hospital of the Boston Red Sox and get discount tickets to go see them. And so that's like a huge perk of this job that I'm that I'm loving right now and taking my son to games. Do you do you remember from um <laughs> I, I can't remember the first or second season. I haven't watched the third one, but Danny is like he's so good at his dive though. Like when he got injured, do you remember his fall? Mm-hmm. Like it was well, okay. There's already crickets, but it was my every time my husband and I watch it, we were both soccer players and I played in college. And so we watched this dive and it's the most re- mm-hmm. ridiculous dive you'll ever see that Danny does uh, when he gets injured. I have to go back and watch it again. <laughs> uh, you've got to watch the third season. Yeah. Does Danny it's, dive it's, again? Da- da- Danny oh. scores a goal off his face. Well, he scores a goal off his face, which is <laughs> classic. It's perfect. It's awesome. Excellent. Uh, Megan, you got a tubular secretion for us? Uh, I don't know if this one counts, but I'll try it. This is some, I, I have one and a three-year-old, so I don't have a lot of new things in my life other than taking care of them and the, the challenges that that brings. But I will say that in being invited to do this podcast, I started to realize that there's a lot of renal related podcasts out there, or there's more than zero, which is what I thought. Julia, <laughs> so, you're making a real difference. Wow. Good. I'm also, I'm a, run- <laughs> I'm a runner. And so my thing was always when I run, I listen to podcasts, which is probably not typical. People probably listen to music, but I used to listen to like, you know, I don't know, like uh, either comedy podcasts or running podcasts. 
So my new thing now is to start listening to nephrology podcasts while I run. So there I can, you know, think about the nephron as I probably dehydrate my own. But uh, yeah, so that's- Do you live in Hyde Park? I live in Hyde Park, yeah. So as I'm running along the lake and and probably getting volume deplete, I will be thinking about, you know, what's happening in my proximal tubules. And are you going to send your kids to the lab school like all you good UFC students do? My three-year-old starts summer lab next month. Nice. (laughs) (laughs) Well done. Excellent. Excellent. Very good. Sophie- you so my initially my tubular secretion was to uh, promote the stone camp, which was pretty fantastic. And I would say anybody who's not interested in stones, if you go spend a day and a half with John, you will be fascinated by them. And it's case based; it's super cool. But since I already also, if you're not interested in stones, why have you listened to us for the last two hours? <laughs> right. I have no idea what's wrong with you. Trust us; nobody not interested in stones has gotten this far. Good call, um, John. But uh, <laughs> since I've already put in that plug, I was going to put in a new plug. So I've been working on this uh, labor of love project for a really long time. It's called abckidney.com, and it's trying to teach kidney physiology online. Mm-hmm. And the target right now... Innovation in, in ASN, Innovation in Education right, Award right. winner. And, ASN, right? right? And so it's slowly Let's moving forward, there. and I've just relaunched my new face for abckidney.com. It's got a new appearing logo. I have an illustrator, Moment Abasi, so he's helped really put some new personality oh, to sweet. it. Still a little glitchy. Yeah. I got the University of Colorado computer science program as a capstone project to put it together. And there are some things that need to work out, but it has changed dramatically. So check it out. I am the animator. Um, so I have learned to animate to do this. Uh, what's, the, what, what's the URL? It's www.abckidney.com. Really easy to remember it. Perfect. So there's, there are... Animations that are like really simple concepts. It's going to be all of kidney physiology. Um, main target will be nephrocurious and medical students, but I think it will probably even target early nephrology fellows. Um, at least that's my dream. We're not there yet. And uh, you'll get animation, you'll get multiple choice, and then you get this interactive feature where you can actually move pieces yourself on the computer screen to prove that you understand the concept. Um, so lots of big dreams with it. It's still in its infancy. I'm going to try and be studying it in a couple of months and I want people to start checking it out and giving me feedback. Outstanding. ABCKidney.com from Sophia. Nyan, so I, I was going to mention the, uh, series finale of Ted Lasso by the time this podcast airs and I'm sad that that show is ending. Um, but since we've already mentioned, I'm going to pivot. Yeah. Uh, and I will talk about the books I've been reading, which is uh, a series of novels by Robert Galbraith, uh, who it's an alias for JK Rowling. So, you know, irregardless of what you think oh. about her politically and everything else I understand, but uh, these books, um, I find them really good. They, they sit around a uh, central character, which is a fictional private detective by the name of Cormoran Strike. And essentially there's six mystery novels. The seventh one's coming out this year. And I believe there's a TV show as well um, that was on BBC, maybe taken up by HBO Max or something. So uh, really good, you know, fun reads. Um uh, so Robert Galbraith and the Corbin Strike series. Excellent. So nine with the transphobic. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <John. laughs> 
John, you got any tubular secretions well, I, for gonna, us? Gonna, I wasn't planning to say this, but I'm going to second Ryan's uh, Robert Galbraith uh, detective series. I've just finished the fifth one um, the, and then pivoted to a, a book about medicine that I almost never read pleasure readings about medicine and that um, uh, Emperor of All Diseases. I don't know if you've oh, heard that. So maladies. So good. And, and that's, yeah. Uh, yeah. It's really you know about cancer and it's uh, – uh, I'm about to throw the way through it. It's really good. And just the, on, the only other thing I wanted to comment is uh, if anyone's made it this far through this uh, podcast and they're interested in stones, they should read, they should read Fred Coe's blog on kidney stones. It's, oh, so good. It's yeah. so good. And if you just type in Frederick Coe kidney stones into Google, you'll find his blog and he covers many topics in depth in the style that only Fred can. And he has a post on the No Stone trial. For the record, that was two for the transphobic mystery novels. So. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think you've got seven for Nephro Curious. That's like the. <laughs> so my son is coming home from college next week, which will probably be a month ago when this thing finally gets published. But. Uh, and I'm very excited to go to, we're going to an IMAX showing of Spider-Man across the Spider-Verse. Thank you. Across the Spider-Verse. I'm very excited to see that with my son. And just, uh, I love the first Spider-Verse animated movie and I'm really excited to see this second one. I guess there's going to be a third one after this. That's what I've got. Hey, thanks everybody for joining us. This has been a great episode and not too long. Oh, no, don't, don't hang up. Is what I was saying. Stop recording. Yeah, don't. Yeah, I'm going to stop recording right now. So that's a stop. <laughs>